and welcome to Emerging Markets Today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso, and this episode is going to be about Suriname. We are going to talk about the country's economic development and how urbanization is affecting their wildlife. And I have a very special guest today. Her name is Monique Poe. She's the founder and director of the Green Heritage Fund Suriname. Hi, Monique. Hi, good morning, Anna. Uh, very nice to be with you today. I had someone talking about Guyana in the past here in the podcast, and I'm from Brazil originally. I know not, next to nothing about Guyana and even less about Suriname. So I really want to learn about the country. I The reason I invite you to the podcast is because I watched a documentary about you and about the work you do in Suriname with um, Save the Slots. I think the media dubbed you as the slot lady. <laughs> yes, it's true. Uh, and uh, I'm not offended if you call me that. I think it's an honor to be called that because um, it indicates the, the relationship I have with these animals that are really beautiful animals. So, yeah, but before we talk about your work with the Green Heritage Fund, which is uh, is an NGO, isn't it? Yes, it's a not 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 for profit, um, and uh, yeah, we also say social benefit uh, organization because we do create social benefits uh, by doing the work we do. We can talk about the country's Suriname's economic development. So, what's been happening there now, and and then how this economic development is affecting the wildlife. Yeah, so so Suriname is a, a very small country in South America. We speak Dutch, we are a former Dutch colony. So that makes us a bit of an odd uh, country in the, this, this region. Uh, we are one of the three Guyanas. Uh, I think some of your uh, people from South America know us as like, um, uh, Guyana Hollandaise. <laughs> yes, the Dutch Guyana, but that was very old. The old map, as you can see there. Yes, we've had our independence since 1975. And um, yeah, so we had a number of uh, economic developments in the sense of um, we had uh, from the 80s, they found oil. But before that, we were uh, really like aluminium producing country. That has stopped for some years now, but uh, the oil is still there. And then they found gold. So a lot of gold in the country um, that uh, is being exploited both industrially as well as with illegal gold mining. And illegal gold mining is unregulated. It's uh, uh, really ravaging our forests. And um, uh, most of our people, so it's a small country, and most of our people live in the coastal zone. And there's a smaller population of tribal peoples and indigenous people who live in the interior. And um, that, that development on the coastline where we have one big city, which is Paramaribo, um, is actually fragmenting the coastal forests. And I... I personally always think the coastal forests are beautiful and we actually have a lot of species still living there. Uh, a lot of people always think 
if you have a primary tropical forest, it has to be like uh, in the interior and that's the real forest, but there are actually coastal forests. And we have a rehabilitation center that is in a marsh forest. And that's a thousand years old. It's a beautiful place. We have a lot of species there and it's in the coastal zone. I can hear the birds in the background. It reminds me a little bit of Brazil. We call, we call them bank TVs because they sound like they saying that, bank TV. Yes, yes, yes. Here they are um, called Grietje um, B. And I think the English call them Kiskadi. Yeah, so it's a, it's a very common bird, I think, in the coastal zone. Yeah. And um, yeah, and then one thing I found out about Suriname as well, Monique, is one of the three carbon negative countries. So what what does that mean? Yeah, so so uh, that means basically, the, you know, it's like uh, when they're calculating, you know, when you make your budget, you always have a minus and a plus. And so for carbon emissions, they do the same type of um, uh, calculation, you know, where you have the pluses and the minuses. And then if if there's more um, uh, pluses than minuses, then, then you become an emitting country. But if you have uh, not that much pluses, like not that much emissions, and you have a lot of forests like Suriname has, you know, we have 93% forest left uh, of the original forest cover then uh, there's more uh, absorption. And so you get this uh, carbon negative, not neutral, but carbon negative uh, balance. Uh, so that's that's basically what it means. There are only three countries in the whole world that are carbon negative. And they are, I uh, think if I'm not mistaken, they're Bhutan, Suriname is the second one, and Panama. You didn't know that. Uh, yeah, so, so we're really uh, proud to be there. Uh, but we need to find a way of developing our country so that we can remain carbon negative. I think one of the good things uh, that actually the, the Maroon tribe of the Upper Suriname River made in the 1960s, a big sacrifice when um, they had to move from their traditional lands and there was a big lake created, a reservoir, and it's creating hydropower. So I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, that we are not emitting that much because we're not using that much um, uh, fossil fuels. We are producing fossil fuels, but for generating energy, we have the hydropower dam. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons that we have less emissions than most other countries. And I, I think that that sacrifice that they made was quite remarkable. Uh, it was, not, of course, not voluntary because in those days, you you know, your government just decided for you. And then, uh, unfortunately, uh, we didn't have a lot of say in what was happening. But because of that, because of that sacrifice, we do have this uh, this situation now. Yeah, yeah. Actually, what brings me to my next question is, I think it's a trend in most developing countries. Um most Brazil obviously has been an urban country for a few decades. I think it's a little bit ahead, but you see a trend countries in Africa and the same, I guess, with Suriname, that is the urban cities, the urban population is growing. And 
as in true emerging markets fashion, there is no much urban planning. The city just grows and the infrastructure takes a while to catch up. And also you have the wildlife around it. So how this this urbanization, the economic development is affecting the wildlife around it, especially in Paramaribo, you know, it's the main city there. Yeah, so so let's let me get back to to how small the country is and the population size, because that's actually uh, so so our country is 163,000 square kilometers. It's uh, uh, five times Holland, something like that in size, and then we have a population size of uh, a little over 500,000 people, and of those. Uh, that population, I think around 300,000 people live in Paramaribo and surrounding areas. So that means there's urban sprawl, uh, as you said, no uh, planning. So the city is like organically growing in all manners. Uh, and we we have these um, uh, forest um, islands, I would call them, are created within that space because um, uh, there's um, uh, forest patches that are owned by families. You know, sometimes, for example, uh, there are like 100 owners because of the growing of the families. It's something that they inherited maybe decades ago. But then, of course, there's more and more um, children and then more inheritors, and they don't sell it because they need to have the permission of all people that are uh, inheriting this. And so those those patches remain because they don't get sold, they don't get developed. So this is private land and they remain private. And so, yes, it's private land. Then um, it doesn't get sold, but around it, uh, people start developing. And then you have this um, sort of a forest island. They can be like six to seven hectare, and uh, in 2012, somebody, the, all the wildlife that is left then starts, of course, migrating because they come from other parts where these little trees, smaller plots of maybe two, three, three, uh, 3,000 square meters get also. Um, and, and so you, you get this small patch of forest within the city limits that is teeming with life. And so in 2012, there was this uh, farmer who um, had owned seven hectares of land. The Animal Protection Society, um, who was regularly in that neighborhood, said to me, oh, there's 13 uh, uh, sloats there. We've seen them. Uh, uh, If they are going to cut it, will you remove them? And I said, yes, of course. Uh, I'd never seen more than six animals together. But I still, you know, said I would do it because, you know, I feel sorry for the animals. And uh, then then we got permission from the owner of the land. We got permission from the Nature Conservation Division. We were there on the land for uh, more than 30 days while they were deforesting it. And there were more than... 135 uh, three-fingered slots in that small patch of land and a lot of other animals. So around, I think in total, we got 200 animals out of that uh, forest patch. 
So mostly uh, three three fingered slots, uh, 135 around, and then uh, we had two fingered slots. We had porcupines. We had uh, uh, the silky ant eaters. Um, there were other species that were too fast, uh, so they would move out faster, like some monkeys, some um, uh, taman. Uh, I think you call them tamandua in Brazil, which is the smaller climber uh, uh, anteaters. Uh, so a lot of those animals and and snakes and those type of animals and birds, of course, they snakes move out as soon as the the, the soil starts, uh, you know, moving. They start to move out and then birds can fly away. So those those were there, but of course left. But the, those, those animals that I, I mentioned, uh, one is the Brazilian porcupine. They are slow, they're very slow animals. Um, and so they, they remain behind. So the trees would fall around them and they would get concentrated more and more on the little trees that were left. And then you came in and did all this hard work of relocating and moving the animals to a better area, to a more distant area from this urban development. And then Monique, having said that, how did you start your work with wildlife conservation? And also when did Green Heritage Fund start? Yeah, so um, um, it started actually in 2005 when I, I lost my dog because of people shooting uh, fireworks and she was very scared. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Yeah, she ran away and I started looking for two weeks. I, I looked around the neighborhood to find her. I called at a certain moment the Animal Protection Society and they uh, told me about all their problems with uh, pets, but then also with a, a baby sloat. And so I told them, I said, you know, I can help you because they are not equipped. Not that I was equipped to do that, but uh, I don't know. I just said this in my head that I maybe could No, help. it's a terrible thing. You know, it's fireworks and pets. I... So and then, then, then I got this first baby slot and uh, that's how it started because I, I was, I didn't know anything about them and how to take care of them because they are very special metabolism. Uh, they're not like pets at all. They, they, they have a special diet. And so I, I had to learn a lot and I was learning together with the, the veterinary doctor that was helping me at the time. So I would bring the animal in. We were getting information from the internet and, and made contact with people in Costa Rica and then in Colombia about how to take care of the animals. So we, we learned a lot. But every time when I was going there, because she was the head of the Animal Protection Society, she would tell me, oh, today we had a rescue of an anteater or we somebody called us to rescue a sloat. And, she said, but we don't have the capacity uh, to do this because they focus on, on pets. And I said, okay, uh, I'm really interested why they are getting in trouble and you don't get you know, calls for monkeys or other wildlife. And so I agreed as a volunteer for, for their organization to take all the calls. That's how I got involved. And then I started looking on the internet and realized how 
much hype there was around sloats. People were uh, using their images. Uh, and I thought if I would ever use their image, I, I would like if there was a commercial like use of their image, then all the money should come back to them to help them. And that's when I set up the Green Heritage Fund Suriname in October. So that's how that happened. Yeah. In October to 20, 2005. 2005, wow. So it's been, yeah, over 15 years, 17 years. I know you're very well known about the slots with different documentaries. Uh, I think the documentary I was watching about you is called, it was showing here on the Swedish TV, it's called Echo Heroines. And you were the slot lady, they called you <laughs> Monique in the slots. But you also do other animals as well, not just slots, isn't it? All this work of relocation. So what, what would be your typical day if there is a typical day, Monique? Yes. So I, I must say that the work of conservationists, so people working in nature protection, is not as romantic as it appears. We do a lot of desk work, reporting, and then from time to time we get these calls and then we go out and, and rescue animals from a difficult situation. Uh, we have a lot of pet and uh, wildlife interactions. So... Um, because sometimes people are next to a forest fragment and we ask them, we say, well, don't you think the animal's going to go back? And then they say, no, we have five dogs. So uh, if it goes back, we are afraid the dogs will attack it. So there is a lot of uh, awareness about this. So that's really good. Uh, I think after 17 years of working with this species that people have become aware. And so, there, there's something you were asking what species I work with. There's this special group, it's called the Xenatra. And uh, it's uh, typically South American. And I'm really proud to say that the South American species group, uh, they, they're basal clade, which means they're a very old um, mammal group. And they, they have different uh, animals in there. There are sloats, so two-fingered and three-fingered sloats. Then we have the anteaters. Uh, anteaters are, are also like exclusive for, for South America. And then, then we have the armadillos. And the armadillos are the only one, one species that also occurs in, in North America. But for the rest, we can really proudly say, and, and you know, I'm always, I'm a very proud South American. Uh, I'll proudly say that this is a typically South American uh, animal group and a very old one. If you have seen Ice Age, all these animals were already uh, existing then, maybe in a little bit different uh, form. Like you have Sid, which was a huge uh, giant ground sloth. And then you have those, uh, I think there are two armadillos also in there. Yeah, yeah. I think there was some, there used to be some more like giant armadillos. It would be very big compared to those we have nowadays. Yes, I was visiting uh, Argentina and Buenos Aires. I was at the university there. And they, it, it was, they were huge. They have a fossil there that is like, like a, you know, like a small car. It's, it's just amazing. Yeah, amazing. And so these are very special animals. They are called Xenatra. 
because uh, they have a special bone structure. So um, xenos is strange, and then arthros are joints. And so in their um, in their spine, they have extra articulation. So they have extra bones. And we think that's like a theory. Why would they have that? That it makes them, it protects them from uh, predators. And it also, it uh, because they are living in trees, some of them, it uh, stabilizes their spine. So there, there are different theories about it. But yeah, you know- It's fascinating, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. Absolutely, and they are really not uh, very well uh, studied. So there are so many questions we still have that we we want to answer. You know, yeah, and like you were saying, even the the vets and the people involved, they still finding out how to you know take care of the slots. And also, for what I could understand by your documentary, there are differences between the three finger slot and the two finger slot. Just uh, very different in in character. Uh, one is diurnal. The three finger slot is really active during the day, and then the two fingered is a nocturnal animal. Uh, so that's one big difference. And then also in their character, uh, the, the way they move, the two fingered slot is much faster, is much more defensive, and also more resilient. So that's why uh, it's possible, and I'm, I'm not sure if that is. True, but Sweden may actually have some two-fingered slots in in um, you know zoos or or things like that um, because they do survive outside of the range countries. Three-fingered slots uh, don't. So the two-fingered slots can survive outside. So there's the one usually you see in zoos, and but the three-fingered slot they can survive outside the environment. Interesting, interesting. I didn't know that. Wow, well, you know, come from the Suriname economic development, stay for the biology class. <laughs> and I think it's fascinating. Hey, it's me, Ana Paula, and I'm glad you are enjoying the episode. But have you checked the MT site? If not, you can just go to emergingmarkets.today and you can also help me keep the site entirely free to read. No paywalls and no subscription. I'd really appreciate your support with a donation via PayPal or cryptocurrencies. To donate, you can go directly to the AMT site or click on the link in this episode description. Thank you and I hope you enjoyed the rest of the episode. future, Monique, how would you like to see Suriname evolving and developing economically? And is there anything you think is possible to do to have a, let's say, a beneficial or a beneficial relationship with the ecosystem around it and the wildlife around it? So to explain a little bit more about the work we do, we work in the coastal zone and in the marine area as well. So I haven't even touched on those uh, animals yet, the, the, the ones that live in the water. Um, but the whole idea would be, and I think it's possible, that we do have economic development that is based off our uh, nature 
uh, one of the things, for example, the coastal uh, forests um, uh, harbor a number of trees that are very special. Uh, one of them is flowers in the dry season. And uh, then our whole coastal zone is flowering. And so you see all these trees. It's, it's, I personally find it more beautiful than the cherry blossom. You know, the cherry blossom is like spectacular. But this is like natural forests along our complete coast that are flowering. And you can imagine wow. how. Maybe I'll Google, I'll do a Google image and link that on the show notes so people can see that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and you know, bees love that. So you can imagine if we protect that, we get the bee, bee people out there, so to say, uh, and uh, work uh, together with beekeepers and people who now at this moment don't have a way to support themselves, teach them how to work with the bees and have natural honey that would, um, you know, could bring Suriname in one of the top producing uh, tiers of honey producing countries. And um, there are many countries where they would love to, to have this very flowery natural honey. Yeah, in addition, closer to the coast, you know, so we have these coastal forests, marsh forest and, and uh, swamp forest. And then on the coast, we have the mangrove forest. Well, the mangrove forests also produce an incredible honey. So there's like two opportunities to protect ourselves from sea level rise because we're a low-lying country. Uh, so we need to find a way to, to protect ourselves from, from sea level rise. And that would be to, to, to keep our forests on the coast. So that would be one uh, thing. Um, and then the other thing is... Um, uh, yeah, producing honey and getting people who don't have uh, income at this moment into honey pro production. Then on the other hand, we have offshore, we have uh, oil, oil uh, uh, developed at the moment. We, we are oil producing country for many years, uh, since the 80s. Uh, we have onshore uh, oil. Hope that isn't bothered too much. Do you hear that? No? Okay. Um, and so for that to be um, a balanced story in terms of having economic development, but also protection, I think we need to have a marine protected area. And uh, in the past five years, we've been collecting data and making maps so that uh, our policymakers can make decisions about where to put uh, a marine protected area that would, you know, benefit humans and uh, the animals alike. Because uh, we, we always um, look too much, I think, at the benefits we have. And, and we, we need to also look at the benefit of, the, the nat of nature itself. Think a real green development strategy with that. I think most emerging markets, most emerging economies, they have the potential to not grow in a linear way like we did in developed countries. They can grow economically, but also have a beneficial and mutually respectful relationship with the ecosystem around it. Yeah, so so in that in those terms, 
I think Suriname has still so much pristine areas and pristine forest around that we can still make the right decisions. And I, I think that's crucial. Yeah, yeah, you still can make the right decisions. Definitely. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. And Monique, if anyone wants to know more about the Green Heritage Fund in Suriname, donating, I make sure I put all the links in the show notes so people can click on that. Uh, is there anything specific you're looking for? Donations, obviously money is always good. <laughs> Donations are, are wonderful. We have volunteers working both online as well. So any type of help, uh, but also telling the story of our amazing country. And, uh, you know, we, we're in a difficult economic situation in Suriname at this moment. So any type of help that would support our policymakers in taking the right decisions, I think is really important. So um, from outside, if, if we would get the support, I, th I think if our poly policymakers get the right signals from, from abroad, that if we protect and, and develop uh, in a balanced way, that they would support us financially, you know, to, to take the right decisions, I think our policymakers would be able to make those right choices. But um, as, as long as, as that support doesn't come from abroad, uh, where it's not just saying that they're going to help us, but also actually making um, the economic support available to our country so that the poverty, because at this moment there's a lot of poverty, we're I think one of the poorest countries at this moment in South America, uh, then um, that would really, really boost our uh, political um, leaders to take those right decisions. And I think that's at this moment what is missing. And it is crucial for, for Suriname that we get the signal that, yes, uh, you don't have to destroy your forest because we are going to help you protect it and provide financing still to, to, to can you, because now it's, it's like cutting the forest because we need financing. Yeah, yeah, it is not sustainable. Yeah. yeah, digging up the gold in an unsustainable manner. Pressure is easy. I mean, you have these big organizations that are putting pressure on, on governments all around the world to do certain things, whether it's human rights or whether it's uh, um, on, uh, you know, violating uh, other types of rights. But what is missing there is then, you know, you do want me to do this the right way, but give me the economic support as well. You know, we need a balance of payment support, for example. We need uh, more financial inflows, investments in maybe uh, set up a program where a small scale um, uh, gold miners can maybe get scholarships to start educating themselves or their children or start feeding, you know, so that it's it's really not just pressure. We, we really need economic support in, in terms of financial loans that are affordable for uh, poor people. 
so that they can start their own business. They can start and don't have to poach. They don't have to cut forests. They don't have to do the things we don't want. The to illegal do. mining and all that. Yeah, yeah. Illegal logging, illegal mining. Yeah, we have similar things in the Amazon forests as well. Because, yeah, like you said, it's very easy for me or for anyone in the developed country go on Twitter and start tweeting about Suriname. But what? What am I doing, really? Just sitting in my comfortable armchair here in my living room and doing nothing. But so if you do go on Twitter and 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 uh, say anything about Suriname, just say, you know, that we are an amazing carbon-negative country that yes. needs support, you know. And it would be, I think, for my political leaders and for people here, uh, just um, very innovative people to find ways, for example... If I could purchase uh, one tree for a slot in the coastal forest and then help uh, potential new beekeepers, you know, so you need to think of those types of things. Buy one square, um, I think one square meter of forest in the coastal zone would cost 25 euros. Okay, okay. So can people go to the Green Heritage Film site and and buy a, a, por- a portion or buy a tree or sponsor? So that is the little work where I need volunteers from your country for ah, okay. set up these types of financial plans. And I can find the land. I can find people that want to sell their land and uh, we can... Uh, that that but you know it's it's having this uh, collaboration with uh, for example people in the north who are really well first in how to set things up like that we go to public notary here get everything uh, figured out so we can start buying land yeah That's so it's, like yeah. you mentioned is a less romantic way we need someone if anyone listening to this podcast also if you know someone that has this skill set to help Monique setting up this type of funding, please share with them, share this podcast with them. I'll make sure I'll put all the links in the description so you guys can go and check it out, the Green Heritage Fund website as well. And yeah, so thanks, Monique. Thank you for your very insightful interview into Suriname, into wildlife conservation. And it was a pleasure to have you here. Yes, well, thank you very much again for this opportunity. And uh, I would say for people, they can watch uh, uh, different uh, items on our website. We are on YouTube, we are on Instagram, Facebook. We also are uh, linked to a Swedish um, uh, foundation, which is Milky Wire. Check out Milky Wire. We are on Milky Wire. Yes, I'll make sure I put all the links in the show notes so you guys can follow the Green Heritage Fund on YouTube and other social media channels.